Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, we look at war and how it's portrayed in Hollywood when we talk to legendary film writer and critic David Thompson about his new book, The Fatal Alliance, A Century of War on Film. Irish actor Rory Keenan chats about his role in RT's new crime drama, Blackshore, and other roles opposite Don Cheadle in The Guard and Catherine Ryan in Netflix's The Duchess. Plus, Chris Rosser reviews the new Bob Marley biopic, One Love, as well as the much-talked-about superhero movie that isn't a superhero movie, Movie, Madame Webb. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me screen time at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on newstalk.com with the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all, and I hope you're keeping well. I want to start the show by saying a special hello to Padder, a friend of mine, a colleague here in the station, who is a very loyal listener and listens all the time and talks to me about the show, as well as lots of other nice things he does for me at work capacity. He's a very loyal listener to this show. And he was wondering where the favourite movie slot has gone on this show and suggesting it should come back. And indeed it should, Patter. I've just been very busy with an Oscar season and, and interviews and things like that. But I, I, I do agree with you. And from next week on, we shall try and get it back at, into the show because it is nice to hear people talk about their favourite movies. Uh, I love hearing it. And so does Patter. So Patter, it shall be back. Now, last week we spoke to the cast, uh, Amika Maud and Leo Woodall from Netflix's One Day, based on the very popular novel of the same name. People have really been enjoying that funny story about that. So last week before I spoke to the guys, I was given 12 episodes, which I assumed was the entirety of the show. This, I won't bore you with the details, but basically the nice people at Netflix put those in my Netflix account, and there was 12 of them. So I assumed that was the entirety of the series. And when I spoke to them, and when I reviewed it, I spoke to them having watched 12 of them, thinking I'd watch the whole thing. And when episode 12 ends, the show could have ended there. But by golly, there was two extra episodes, and they contained a powerful punch. So I still stand by everything I said about One Day. I think it's a great piece of TV, uh, happy and sad, and a delightful story of these people meeting on the 15th of July over the course of their young lives and falling in and out of love and stuff like that. But I had only watched 12 of them as opposed to 14 of them. I have now watched 14 of them, and the 14 are even better than the 12 as you know, isn't always the case. So uh, one day on Netflix, people are really watching that. When I last checked, it was number one in the TV stakes. And uh, it is it is is a really nice watch and very sad at times as well, but very sweet as well. Now, something that is related is a new show that landed on Channel 4 this week called Alison Jack. If I could be with anyone in the world, it would be with you. So who are you, Jack? Who am I? You're great. You're kind and you're handsome and you're wonderful. People say at some point the excitement fades away, but with you it never has. She does seem pretty cool, though. In an extremely troubling way. You guys don't give Alice enough credit. For what? The abyss? <laughs> Be careful. 
If I were careful with anything in this world, I would be careful with you. You weren't, though. Now, you heard Donald Gleeson and Andrea Riseborough there. Ashling B is also in this. This is on Channel 4. And in a way, there's a slight similarity to One Day in that it's a modern romance drama. Uh, elements of comedy in it as well. And it's kind of being not warmly received from what I've read about it. It's on Channel 4. It's all available to stream, all six episodes in its entirety. They're nearly an hour each. And I, I'm kind of enjoying it, I think. I'm certainly intrigued by it. Donald Gleeson and Andrea Riseborough play a strange couple who come together. They meet one fateful evening through a dating app, I am assuming, how they met each other. Well, that is how they met each other. And Andrea Riseborough is quite direct. She's a little unstable, a little angry, also very sweet at times. Donald Gleeson is very smart science guy, but kind of gormless. And they have a very strange connection. Uh, and they sleep together. It's not much of a spoiler. And then she basically politely kicks him out. Later on, they're at an art gallery and she's horrible to the staff and they kind of break up. Uh, she doesn't want them to call her. She's kind of rotten to him and also loving to him as well. Ashling B then enters the scene and it's kind of in the trailer, so it's not that much of a spoiler. He ends up with her while Alice is still in his life. This is a little odd. And people are saying they don't have much chemistry. Donald Gleeson and Andrea Riseborough. I think they have an interesting chemistry. And I'm certainly intrigued by this. Uh, what's going on? Because it's different. It's certainly not a tale of love going smoothly. And the usual hiccups that happen aren't the usual ones in this. So I'm looking forward to watching some more of Alice and Jack. So I'd like to know if you might have watched any of Alice and Jack, or indeed if you're continuing to watch One Day on Netflix or have enjoyed it all in its entirety, all 14 episodes. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle. Or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. And we turn to the week's new cinema releases. Chief among them is the much-talked-about One Love. I nearly called it One Day. I nearly called it One Life because they are recent movies and indeed TV shows. But this is One Love, all about Bob Marley. And it was released on Wednesday for Valentine's Day. We're also going to talk about a movie that has gained lots of column inches, if that's even such a thing, still a thing anymore, for possibly all the wrong reasons. Madam Web, which began life as a superhero movie but may not actually be more of that anon i'm joined now by film critic and arts journalist chris wasser chris hello hello john how are you I'm very well. So listen, One Love, a Bob Marley biopic of sorts, but this isn't beginning, middle and end. This is taking a significant chunk of seven or eight years or along those lines. Is that right? Yeah, that's true. It's I suppose it kicks off around 75, 76, and then it likes to think that it takes us all the way through to 1981 uh, up to his death. But I think some of the final scenes are actually at the uh, the One Love Peace concert. But it does do that thing where, and, and this is a much better way of approaching the music biopic rather than, you know, the the cradle to the grave story. It's take an interesting, you know, and Bob Marty in his, in his, sh in his short life, 36 years, uh, 
he did it, it was an extraordinary life but it's just looking at one part of it you know a series might come along down the road that'll that'll give us the cradle to the grave bob marty story but ronaldo marcus green is basically saying no we're going to look at how in 1976 right before the small jamaica event there was an assassination attempt on bob and rita Mar- marty's life uh, they both left Jamaica. Rita Marty went off to Australia. Bob Marty went to London to work on, you know, uh, the album Exodus. And then we're going to finish our story at the One Love Peace concert. So it's a couple of years there, a tighter focus. Whatever about the rest of the project, I think when when it comes to music biopics, that's the way to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As opposed to the sprawling uh, cradle to grave and has the prodigious talent, suffers tragedy, then becomes talented, then has drugs, then finds redemption, Yeah, blah, blah, blah. We've seen a lot of that. Although I love some of those movies like Walk the Line and stuff like that, but there is a trend of late to do it in the more kind of let's pick a, a period of time as as you're saying there. So, so far, so good. We have Kingsley Benadir in the titular role. It's a titular role if it isn't in the title, but you know what I mean. He's playing yeah. Bob Marley. How is he as Bob? Uh, yeah, look, I thought I'd get all of the, the the compliments out of the way before we get into what I really <laughs> thought of this film. Uh, Kingsley Benadir, I think he is, from the outset, just cursed with a the, the worst wig of dreadlocks that I've seen in a film. It's just, and you're, and you're thinking to yourself, like, especially with dreadlocks, they are very difficult to do, but with a, with, a, with a very talented makeup artist and costume designer, you could actually do something special. From the beginning, everything about this film looks as though it's just out of the box. Everything is just too kind of Hallmark Channel-esque. Nothing is, is all that lived in. Um, so you have to kind of look at, uh, you have to try and look past this, a very sad and sorry attempt to kind of make him look like Bob Marty because he doesn't look like Bob Marty. That said, he does give an impressive performance. It's a little too overly rehearsed. You know, it's, it's, it's a bit like what we, and we've been seeing so much of this lately when it comes to even Bradley Cooper playing Leonard Bernstein. It's a very different role, but it's another case of an, of an actor just giving us too polished an impersonation. And there's no real room for the performance to breathe. Um, but he is trying hard, as is uh, Lasana Lynch, as, as, as Rita Marley. And, you know, look, as I said, like, it is better that there's a tighter story there. But the film just loses a handle on it. We actually see how, as I said, there was an assassination attempt on Bob Marley's life two days before this peace concert. Because Jamaica was, this was, this was at a time where Jamaica was just becoming a, a dangerous place to live because, you know, political parties had divided the nation. You had gang leaders on the street kind of, made, you know, turning the streets into a war zone. Uh, Bob Marley didn't actually think, you know, he wasn't so naive as to think that a concert, you know, bringing the political parties together would change everything, It would it, that it would fix everything overnight. But he hoped, and as did his band, the Whalers and his wife, Rita, that it would inspire hope. And despite the fact that you had gang leaders trying to kill him a couple of days beforehand, this concert still went to, it still went ahead. And as I say, in the days afterwards, you had Rita and the kids going off to America and Bob goes to London with the Whalers. And there is ample opportunity, I think, in that story to, to show us what Bob, what kind of, you know, what kind of man Bob Marty was around this time? Yes, he was going to London to, 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 to lie low. You know, it was a bit of a self-imposed exile, but he was also going to, to do something extraordinary with his sound. He wanted to push reggae music further. He wanted to create, you know, his magnum opus. And he did do that with Exodus. But the whole thing is a little too, this film at times actually reminded me very much of Bohemian Rhapsody. And that I don't think is, is a good thing. It's too, it's too clean. It's too sanitized a, a, a portrayal. It's very melodramatic. It's a little too soapy. Um, it's full of cliches, John. You know that kind of thing where, and, and Bohemian Rhapsody did this, you know, where you've got musicians sitting around and someone will mention something. It might be, you know, a, a joke or a word that inspires then the, the, the songwriter to come up with their, their, their biggest single. That stuff 
that stuff just grates on me a little bit. You know, it's like, okay, this, this didn't actually happen. And I'm not saying that you can't, you know, kind of embellish the truth a little bit, but it's just to the point where it gets a little bit ridiculous. That just annoys me. Yeah. Now, the Bohemian Rhapsody comparison is interesting because I, I, I thought that film had a lot of flaws, but I but I did enjoy it. And I think it was Remy Malek's performance, although it might have been a uh, impersonation. But the thing about that, and, and this was a famous story at the time, Sacha Baron Cohen left basically because my understanding is he felt it was too sanitized. The remaining members of Queen were trying to tell a story in a certain way that wasn't warts and all. It was kind of my understanding of it. And I'm wondering about Bob Marley. I mean, we have this central relationship and I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but his, his romantic life was complicated. We don't know how many children he has. It's somewhere between eight and 11. He had notoriously many affairs uh, while still married to Rita. Is, is that stuff covered? I'm getting the sense it isn't. Barely. Uh, there is a blink and you'll miss it scene where Bob Marley has this, you know, uh, you know, locks eyes on, on, on this stranger across the room. And then the film seems to suggest that this was maybe one of his many affairs when, you know, himself and, and Rita, though their marriage, they, they weren't separated, but, you know, as I say, she was in one country, he was in another. Mm. And then they have this argument on the street, which kind of alludes to that and alludes to the fact that they did have a lot of children between them. Um, but it doesn't ever explain anything. It never tells us that Bob had nearly a dozen kids. It never really explains how Rita had children uh, uh, for, from, from a different marriage, that Bob had children from a different... Uh, you know, they had a very complicated relationship, John, yeah. and, that, and it never really explores it. And I kept thinking to myself, this film every now and then just runs by you know, a better Bob Marley picture. You could have made a fabulous picture just about the making of Exodus. You could have made a fabulous mm -hmm. film about the whalers coming up, you know, when they were younger in Jamaica. And you could have made a fabulous film just about Bob and Rita's uh, 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 relationship. But instead, it just kind of flies through the details, which is ironic because at the beginning, I was saying it's better that the story is a little bit tighter. But I think the yeah. biggest problem is it's too... There are two, it, this film was made with the cooperation. It's a little bit like Bohemian Rhapsody and what Sasha Baron Cohen was saying. It was made with the full cooperation of the Marley family. And you have mm -hmm. var various members of the Marley family um, serving as, as executive producers. Sometimes that's okay. You know, sometimes, like, so, like, say something like Rocket Man, you had Elton John. Uh, producing, overseeing everything, handing over his memoir and saying, "Here, yeah. that that's okay." And he he wasn't he he wasn't ashamed of anything. He was like, "You can no. do it, warts and all. You can tell the story." With this, it seems like there is far there, there's a heavy hand involved here that's saying we need to just make sure that Bob Marley looks like a hero in this. Mm. We can't have any flaws. It ha it needs to be a very clean cut story, and it needs to be for all the family, and that's a big problem. Okay. Now, often, and look, let's face it, I, I don't think I know anyone who doesn't think Bob Marley made amazing, wonderful, joyous music and some very important music as well. And maybe those things are the same thing. But sometimes with these movies, even though they might be poor, there are great moments where you hear those songs writ large on a screen, be it Another One Bites the Dust or whatever in Bohemian Rhapsody. Does it have that effect? Like, will this bring a new audience to those great songs? Uh, I mean, it does. It says a lot about Bob Marley's music that that even when this film is just at its worst and and i just i i really didn't enjoy it uh that whenever the music comes in and whether it's kingsley benadir kind of singing himself with a guitar whether it's the actual voice of marley when 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 exodus is being recorded that those that those songs just shine through that you do sit there and you are having a good time listening to it there is one fantastic sequence where we see a very young marley 
um, and a very young uh, a, a group of whale- when the whalers were, were starting out, they approached this studio in Jamaica. The, their first encounter with the with the guy who runs the studio is a bad one. He's waving around a gun, you know, trying to get rid of whoever was messing them around previously in the studio. He invites them in and he tells them, "You have like two minutes of my time." And it's very it's very like that sequence where Joaquin Phoenix's uh, Johnny Cash. You know, saunters up to Sun Records, and he and when they play the, the the first couple of songs, they're told, "Right, get out." No, give us something that's give us something that's real. And just like that, you see a teenage Marley and the Whalers. They just they start performing "Simmer Down," and there's just that look on the producer's face. And I know it sounds very cliche, but this actually worked for me. There's just the look on everyone's mm-hmm. face that that tells us something special is happening here. I think if you just focused on that, if you focused on the beginning of the Whalers, those poor guys barely get a look in here. You could have done something magical here. So it's not without its moments. I think it's the music that makes it, but everything okay. else is just everything else is just it's it's just full of cliches. And also, John, it it, it kind of at times reduces Marty to a bit of a caricature to this kind of happy-go-lucky okay. music maker. It's just like, oh, he loved his tunes, he loved his marijuana, he loved his football. He was an awful lot deeper than that. Yeah, no, he certainly was. Okay, well, it sounds like an opportunity somewhat missed, although the music is very much celebrated. So what would you say stars-wise for One Love? I think Kingsley Benadir is trying very hard. I think Lasana Lynch is very good. It's just that the film around them is not good enough. But I do think it'll probably make a fortune. So yeah, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see what happens. But I, I think it's going to have to be two stars. Two stars, okay. Well, let's take a quick clip from the aforementioned One Love. Reggae is a people music. People coming together. Ooh, yeah. You know you're a superstar. Right. I'm a superstar. I wanna jam it with you. There's a war going on. You can't separate the music and the message. Cause every day we pay the price. And what is the message? Peace. A clip there from One Love, which Chris Wasser gave two stars to. So, Chris, now, I don't want to get bogged down in an explainer because the history of this next movie seems nearly more complicated than the plot, if that's possible. But there is a new superhero movie or certainly that's what the billing up to this would lead us to believe called Madam Web which launches this week in cinemas and Madam Web is a distant not relation but a relation in the comic book sense of Spider-Man over to you yeah it's a tricky one I think the simplest quickest thing I can say is that this is another attempt by Sony to create their own little Spider-Man universe despite the fact that every Spider-Man slash non-Spider-Man film they've made that doesn't actually feature Peter Parker has been a bit of a disaster because Peter Parker is Spider-Man. How can you make a Spider-Man film without Spider-Man in it? It's just ridiculous from the outset. Um, but yes, Dakota Johnson is in this. She's playing Madam Web. Madam Web, for the uninitiated in the in the comic books, is this sort of clairvoyant character. She helps uh, all the spider people in Marvel Comics, you know, look into the future, prevent you know, crimes and killings and whatever before they actually happen. Uh, in this film version, we have Dakota Johnson playing a paramedic who lives in New York. Uh, her mother died during childbirth while she was researching spiders in the Amazon. That's a very famous line that went viral from the trailer because it's so ridiculous. Um, but she didn't know anything about her mother. But after she has this near-death experience, she discovers that she can see into the future. And she uses this power, um, you know, reluctantly to try and save three teenage girls who for some reason are being targeted by this madman who was actually with her mother in the Amazon. And he thinks that these three teenage girls are going, going to grow up to be spider women who will kill him he obviously doesn't want that to happen dakota johnson's character doesn't want to uh, help them but you know they all end up doing something that they don't want to if it sounds messy 
that's because it is. Um, and we've read so much about the production of this film, about how, you know, there were reshoots to try and um, uh to remove references to, 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 you know, whatever Spider-Man universe it's supposed to be connected to, to add in references, to change it from a film that was set in the 90s to, to the noughties. It sounds as though, John, the whatever was happening behind the scenes on this has been a mess. And you know what? You can see it. Yeah. And so just to be clear about this then, so uh, this is the bit that's slightly confusing me because it's now being called an almost standalone thriller yeah. as opposed to a superhero movie within the Spider-Verse. That's what they're calling it. Yeah. Um, a, a grounded, gritty suspense thriller, I think is what Dakota Johnson is saying. And yeah, you have, uh, you have the director, SJ Clarkson, is saying that this is just, this exists in a world of its own. Fair enough, but um, I don't think this is a spoiler. You basically have Adam Scott playing Ben Parker, a very young, Mm. you know, sexy Ben Parker. It's as though the filmmakers are trying to kind of paint um, Adam Scott's Ben Parker, who, as I say, is the uncle to Peter Parker, who isn't yet born in this film. We actually see Spider-Man's mom about to give birth to him. Uh, That's a whole other different story. It's as though they're trying to paint him as this sexy hero who, you know, as I say, he was a bit of a hero himself before Peter Parker came along. But they set that up and then they just forget about it. I'm not sure really what the focus is here. And I don't think the filmmakers know that either. Again, there's this sense that, a lot of things about Madame Webb were just tinkered with, you know, in the lab after they'd already shot it. It's as though the film at times, John, is being just rendered and edited in front of our eyes. The whole thing is just an unfortunate mess. Yeah, and, and as I say, I'd read a couple of reviews about it, and one particular Rolling Stone that got me, the headline was, uh, Madame Webb isn't as bad as you've heard, it's worse, which is saying something. And so... Just to be clear about this, then Spider-Man, as in, and maybe you can't say without spoiling it, but it sounds pretty spoiled already. But at no point does Spider-Man show up firing webs then. No, no, no. So this story actually begins in 1973. It takes us up to when Cassie Webb, I mean, her name is Cassie Webb. That's just ridiculous. But Dakota Johnson's character is 30. She's a paramedic in New York. And as I say, her colleague is Ben Parker. So Spider-Man hasn't even been born yet. And that's the version that S.J. Clarkson, the director, and her many collaborators, I think... I think there's about four, there are, there are at least four screenwriters involved here, but then there were more people involved in the creation of the story. That's the version that we're getting in this about what, and what I mean by that is there might've been a different version when this film actually started production. Um, but it's all ended up, it's, it's, it's just all ended up all over the place. Um, there are problems with the, with the, with the line readings. There are times where you're thinking to yourself, Dakota Johnson, Sidney Sweeney, Adam Scott, all great performers when they're with the right people. Look at Adam Scott in Severance. Look at Dakota Johnson in, uh, in, in, in The Lost Daughter. Look at Sidney Sweeney in, in, in The White Lotus. They are all brilliant if they're directed well and if they have the right material. If they don't, their readings are just awful. To the point where you're thinking, did, did the director not say, right, let's, let's try that again? And then there's the problem with the villain. The villain is, as I say, this, uh, this explorer friend of Dakota Johnson's character's mother who kind of turned on her when they were in the Amazon. And he has this magic spider that gives him all sorts of powers. It doesn't really matter, John. What matters is that every time Tahir Rahim, who's the actor playing the villain, appears on screen, his lines have clearly been not just overdubbed, but no effort has gone in to make it look as though he's saying the things that we're hearing. I do not know what this villain was originally saying, but it's comically bad. It's like a badly dubbed uh, martial arts film. You know, when you used to see martial arts films that were translated into English and it was just a lot, it's like that. 
And at times, Ooh, I thought, yes. I, I, at times I thought there must be just something wrong with the screen here. And then, then <laughs> as it goes, then as it goes along, you're thinking, well, no, everyone's lips are moving and they seem to be saying the things they're supposed to be saying. What happened here? So clearly there was a bit of a nightmare in post-production. But again, yeah. whatever about the film being bad, I just think, and, I, and, and look, she is very good with the right material, but she is worse here than she was in Fifty Shades of Grey, Dakota Johnson, I mean. If she is not interested in the screenplay, it shows. She cannot yeah. hide her disinterest. It's all over the place. Wow. And it's funny, a film so bad you actually think the screen is broken. That's saying something. <laughs> Look, we could ha- we could hammer this, you know, for the next 20 minutes, right? So often the refrain, and we've been here before, is this is still going to do gangbusters at the box office. That logic isn't holding as much as it was last year. Duds is probably overstating it, but they there was an unsuccessful box office with lots of superhero movies, things like Aquaman 2 and all. So this is really going to he- help is the wrong word. But if there is a tiring of the superhero franchise, this is really going to fast track it, it seems. I think it might, yeah. And but uh, well, I mean, a, f- a few of the the Sony Spider Verse films have worked quite well. Obviously, the animated into the Spider Verse films, they were I, great. I yeah, do you know what? I put them in a room by themselves, John. Th- those yeah. films, those films are, are phen- phenomenal because they have proper filmmakers involved and they know what they're doing. Uh, the Venom films, on the other hand, they're terrible, but but again, but they do make money. So I'm not really sure what way this is going to go. It could be a case that you have people showing up to see how bad it is because something mm. that's reviewed this badly and we're talking about it and we shouldn't take this seriously but still a 17% rotten score on Rotten Tomatoes that might be something that will pique people's interest and I will say that Sony did not have a press screening for Irish critics for this so I had to go along during the week buy a ticket it's unheard of John <laughs> but I had to buy a ticket to see this film in the cinema there were people there they're, 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 and it was an early morning screening, but people showed up for this. So it could be a case wow. that people are intrigued by the bad reviews. They want to see how bad it is for themselves. There aren't going to be that many superhero films this year, so maybe people will show up for the few that there are. But also it could be that the, the trailer for this was hilarious. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. produ- but instantly produced memes that you then that you now have reporters, you know, showing Dakota Johnson these memes, and she's kind of struggling to understand what they all mean. But people want to see those comical moments for themselves on yeah. the screen. So it might do business, it might not. We'll find out next week. I remember Bruce Springsteen talking about Born to Run and just not knowing when to let it go and was it finished? Was it finished? And it went on for nearly a year. That agonizing he had over it. But it sounds, uh, and the analogy I'm making is this like wasn't even finished and they've released it because it nearly sounds that way that that this could deal with some you know post-production still needs to be done in this film there it's not in a releasable state john i mean while you're watching the film you're thinking to yourself I'm, I'm not just embarrassed for everyone involved in this. I kind of feel sorry for them. I feel sorry for S.J. Clarkson making her directorial feature debut. I feel sorry for some of the smaller supporting players who might have thought that this would be a huge blockbuster chance because the film is suggesting all the time that there's going to be two or three more like it. It's setting up this universe itself. I don't know whether they'll get to make those features. And I feel sorry for the talent involved. because, But, but at the same time, I'm thinking... There were some very powerful people in the room at Sony watching this thing. And you think that someone would have turned around and, got, and went, we can't put this out. It's not done yeah. yet. The visual effects don't look ready. Uh, we need to reshoot some of these things. The story is not coherent to the point that even the hardcore Marvel fans will be able to tell what's going on. Forget about those uninitiated with the comics. They're going to be completely <laughs> lost. Um, it's just not ready. And I think if maybe, I'm not sure if it, if, if, if it might have been salvageable at all, 
but they should have taken it out and said, let's go away and work on this thing because yeah. it's just embarrassing. And, and they have done that with films. There are films that are made that have never seen the light of day and, you know, they continue to tinker with and may or, or just may never be released. So it does happen. So, I mean, that's that's pretty shocking. So, you know, it looks broken, unfinished. You feel bad for the people involved. So I'm almost afraid to ask you, but what are you going to say stars-wise? I think it's you look it it ended John so that gets a star <laughs> but but aside from that no it's it is genuinely we've heard this an awful lot over the last year and a half because there have been a lot of bad superhero movies and and I am beginning to think that that bubble it, we're not we're no longer waiting for the bubble to burst it has burst mm, and and, yeah. and we are seeing a decline in, in quality especially at Marvel we thought Marvel was just untouchable but it, it, it things are getting bad and we have heard this term before it's the worst superhero movie of all this is this might actually be the worst one that I've seen. It just no, it looks as though no care has gone into it whatsoever. And even with the other bad ones we've seen, they had their moments. This doesn't have any. Wow. Okay. Well, that is a generous one star, Chris Wasser. Chris, thanks a million. Thanks, John. Chris Wasser there giving Madame Webb one star, a movie that doesn't sound like it's finished. Good heavens. I know you have to applaud anyone who makes a movie, and there's a huge miracle in any movie getting made. But, like, come on, lads, finish the thing. Like, people are paying, you know, on average 20 quid to go and watch this stuff. I'm sorry, I was kind of annoyed by that. Anyway, I'll calm down. Because after the break, we're looking at how war is portrayed on the big screen. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now, war. What is it good for, as the song goes? Well, quite a lot, it seems, when it comes to filmmakers. As war has been the subject and indeed setting for countless films, The Fatal Alliance, A Century of War on Film, is a recently published book from film critic and historian David Thompson, who is the author of more than 20 books. His reference works, in particular, Have You Seen? A Personal Introduction to a Thousand Films, and the new biographical dictionary of film, which has had many editions, have been praised as works of high literature, and indeed our own John Banville called him the greatest living writer on movies. He previously spoke to us after the Will Smith slap and also about his book, The Directors, a few years ago, and I'm delighted to say he joins me all the way from the west coast of America now. Hello, sir. Hi, how are you? I'm very well. So let me start kind of at the obvious first place. You're a film writer you write books about film was war on your mind because of the sad state of the world or had you always been planning this at some stage no i it's not that i'd always been planning it um it, it, it's um i grew up in london while it was being bombed i'm that old and and the impact of the war not so much the war itself, because I was too young, but yeah. feeling after the war, the sort of incredibly prolonged food rationing we had in England, and, and, and the way in which it became clear that the ordeal of war and the, the commitment the public had made to it was so intense, it shaped the way people thought. And there were all manner of war films after the war, combat films, pretty shameless dated things by today but anyway um war is a thing that has always been in my life i think and i think anybody who's been alive since say 1945 would say the same 
I got talking with one of my sons. And this is what really prompted the book. And, you know, we were just locking around in conversation. And he said, what's your favorite combat film? And I said, well, it must be Black Hawk Down because every time I get a chance to see it, every time I see it's on television or whatever, I just can't resist it. And I dip in for like 20 minutes at a time. And I, I know the film very well because I have seen it so many times. And he said, I exactly agree. My favorite too. He, he's like 33. You know, we got talking about how we love to watch that kind of battling and combat <laughs> and how we would be terrified to be there. And it made me start thinking that there's something remarkable in war. It has been a faithful genre in film history ever since really film began. We watch it from the safety of the dark. We watch people being slaughtered. We watch people being mown down. And we come away and we say, oh, war is a really terrible, terrible thing. And we agree about that. And God knows we may be all too close to some large war now. So, you know, and yet we go back to it endlessly for fun. Mm -hmm. And that yeah. really triggered the book. That's what set the book off. And I was thinking about this en route to talking to you, that nearly everything I, and I imagine most people, think we know about war comes from the movies. Now, obviously, I've read a book or two in my life and seen TV shows and listened to news. But in terms of my sense of what it's like to be a soldier, it's the cinema, first and foremost, that informs me and most people, I imagine. I think you're absolutely correct. And of course, that leads to certain conclusions that we are used to films in which essentially our side wins. The people mm. we are identifying with, the movie stars, and, and they win. And the battle scenes are constructed uh, in terms of prowess and achievement. They're filmed so that certain people do things and they do them successfully. Now, that's not to say you don't see casualties in war, but, but, but you see accomplishment. And I think that part of the, what's false in war films is that everybody is brave. Certainly, if they're a star, they're brave, and they do what they set out to do, whereas I think the reality of war is much closer to the notion that everyone is scared out of their wits and they make a mess of it. The, some of the best books about war, I think, fiction and nonfiction, are candid about how battles are terrible, confused messes in which no one is really in charge, no one really knows exactly what's going on, but someone is declared the winner. And once they're declared the winner, they become iconic figures. They become people like George Patton, let's say, or, you know, yeah. some of the English, the British leaders. I think that's not entirely. 
because I think many people are brave some of the time. But I think essentially the movies have given us a totally misleading impression of what war is, which you have to say is an atmosphere and a climate that is sending us back into war. It's almost as if they are part of that sort of advertising campaign, says to young men, your country needs you. Join up, be a man, Do be all that you can be. And that's an atmosphere that has caused terrible damage, I think. So in a way, are you saying that nearly all war movies are unfortunately pro-war? Well, that's an argument that I talk about in the book because, you know, a lot of filmmakers say, oh, well, I just made a great anti-war film. Well, if that's the case, I think there maybe ought to be less war because they ought to have persuaded people not to go to war. Whereas I think beneath the surface, films are saying, you know, war can make you a hero. War can fulfill you. War is exciting. War is fun. It's another version of my son and I, who I assure you are both fairly decent and absolutely cowardly people, having fun watching a film about American soldiers trying to bring order to Somalia, when really they hadn't got the first idea what Somalia was and what was going on in that country. Yeah, The politics behind war films is sh- really shameful most of the time. And so people might point to certain exceptions, so, and I will now and, and get your take on it. And, and one of the off-quoted ones is, not in its entirety, but the opening scene, and that, I suppose, montage is the wrong word, but the opening play of Saving Private Ryan yeah. on Omaha Beach, where still, and I saw it not that long ago, is visceral and you feel like, oh my God, these people are just lame ducks. This is horrific. This is the horror of war. But I assume you probably think that notwithstanding, that is still pretty much a pro-war film. Well, I mean, I admire the film very much. Uh, I think the that scene where they go ashore on the beaches at the beginning is uh, a very, very important attempt to render the actual experience of war, and I admire that very much. However, in the end, it's a film that says, earn the the achievement of the war and do justice to the sacrifice other people made. And I understand that, and I, I, I honor the people who fought in, say, the Second World War particularly, which I think was an, an unusually just or necessary war. But still, I do think Spielberg loves to shoot these combat scenes. And when they when they hold the bridge at the end, the, con- the concluding action scene, if you remember that film, many of the central characters are killed. Still, you have a great sense of accomplishment. And all I'm trying to say is, I think that is potentially a misleading feeling. I mean, don't get me wrong. This is a book in which I I go into depth about many films. Saving Private Ryan is one of them. And I admire these films. I think there are great films made about war. 
but I'm trying to separate the quality on screen from what that quality and what that sense of prowess has done to us and our ordinary thinking about war. Because I just wonder when we are going to organize ourselves in such a way that politically we act on the thing deep down we all believe, which is we do not want to go to war. Mm-hmm. Almost as if we the people need to take charge of the war and not trust it to politicians or military leaders or brave soldiers. And I suppose another amendment to that I was thinking about as well is when I kind of came of age cinematically, a lot of the movies I saw around war were around Vietnam, because uh, you, you know better than me, but there seemed to be a slew of these in the 80s uh, and early 90s when America was refiguring the relationship with that. So I'm thinking of Platoon, Casualties of War, a few years later, Born on the 4th of July. And it seems to me that those, and and this is, might be a strange argument, but even Sylvester Stallone's First Blood, where he's a returning vet, that those filmmakers were attempting to say, you know, war was horrible. We shouldn't have been there and it's messed us up and we were never welcome back. But I, I want to know what you think of those movies. Well, I, I, I think Vietnam is a absolutely essential test case. Uh, I have a long chapter on Vietnam. And, and, you know, there are many spectacular films made about it. The ones you mentioned, uh, Apocalypse Now. Uh, of course, yeah. There is the extraordinary Ken Burns, Lynn Novick, multi-episode documentary history of the war, which is a great, great work, I think. I regret this, that there have not been films that say in, let's say, 1945, uh, the Americans fighting the Second World War were in a close working alignment with the forces that wanted nationalism in Vietnam that were actually led by a man named Ho Chi Minh, who became a great villain figure later. But really, Ho Chi Minh was talking to the Americans. He was collaborating with them. And he was hopeful that America would bring about a unified Indochina, as it was then thought of, but Mm. Vietnam. And we let that opportunity go. We let it go because we we bought into the idea that what was happening in Vietnam was a threat to our security thousands of miles away. That terrible war, and it was a terrible war, devastating to American confidence, ruinous to the people of Vietnam and the infrastructure. We should not forget that Vietnam has now become a part of the world. I'm not saying it's the ideal free state, but, you know, I make a little joke uh, in the book. While I was writing the Vietnam chapter, I was taking a shower, and I noticed my underwear was made in Vietnam. Now, that seems like a silly aside and a, a joke, but it's a great lesson in how life goes on and the people that you were vowed to destroy and they were vowed to destroy you, you have to come to terms with them. And war films on the whole, I think, encourage the idea of the separation of us and the enemy. 
And I don't think it's actually true to the way the world functions. So I presume you're not suggesting that, you know, if someone wants to watch Bridge over the River Kwai or The Great Escape or 1917, whatever their favorite war movie is this weekend, that they shouldn't do that because it somehow pedestalizes conflict. But you are asking that maybe we just reflect on it a bit. Exactly. I mean... I mean, really what I do all the time as a writer about film is to say, well, look, here's a film, very dramatic, very effective, wonderful to watch, but think about it and think about what it's really saying and what's behind it. And don't just settle for having fun. You deserve fun. The film is made so that you will have fun. And some of them are amazingly effective about that. But the subject matter is so pressing so dangerous. We really need to think as hard about it as we can. The book is called The Fatal Alliance, A History of War on Film. I'm, I even checked today and it's in an Irish bookshop. And of course, it's available in all sorts of places online like Amazon. Really? Let me just ask you something in closing. I said this to you before because the first time I spoke to you, you said this great thing that I really liked where you said, you thought the best movie of the year, and maybe it was like 2019 or 2020, was the last four episodes of Ozark, which I, which I thought was great. And I've quoted you many times. I've given you credit, but I have quoted you many times. I'm wondering, has there been a TV show since Ozark that you rate as highly? Um, a TV show? No, I, I don't think so. I, I, I have the horrible feeling that the long-form series, which had a really great period, I think mm. I think it's a little bit in decline at the moment. Um, okay. The only other series that I would rate as highly is the German series Babylon Berlin, which, yeah. apart from anything else, is a brilliant um, evocation of a country that was about to take the world to war. But mm. that's, that's a, a great series, I think. Okay. Well, you heard it here, folks. The uh, golden age of TV TV may be slightly in decline, and uh, you should take his word for it, because he knows a lot about a lot of things. David Thompson, thank you very much. Well, thank you, John. Thank you for having me. The great David Thompson there, talking about his new book, The Fatal Alliance, A Century of War on Film. It's a fascinating guy. Uh, and, and that was kind of a deep conversation about the ethics of making war movies, in essence. And uh, David Thompson is a brilliant writer on film as well. As I mentioned, John Banville kind of says he's the best writer on film living and working in the world today. John Banville previously chose his favorite movie and chose The Third Man. If you're a regular listener to this show last year, you may remember, which is a movie that takes place very much in the aftermath of World War II. And it's it's kind of a a post-war movie uh, of sorts. Anyway, that's just a little aside. Up next, Irish actor Rory Keenan on playing a somewhat lost cop in RT's new series, Blackshore. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. Now RT's latest Sunday night show is Blackshore. In Blackshore, Lisa Dwan plays a police detective who returns to her hometown when it soon emerges that a local woman has been murdered. She must also reckon with her shadowy past and a terrible tragedy that has pretty much altered the course of her life. She's partnered with a reluctant partner in the form of Rory Keenan, who's a local cop who's having his own problems at home and isn't too wild on working with this blowing 
Wynn from Dublin. Rory Keenan has been a staple on TV and movies for the last 20 years plus in everything from The Gar to Peaky Blinders and a particular favourite of mine was him playing the former boy band Conspiracy Theorist ex-husband of Catherine Ryan and Netflix's The Duchess and I'm delighted to say Rory joins me now. Rory, hello, how are you? Hiya, John. How's it going? Very well. So I suppose your character, I, and I'm four episodes in, RT sent me a few, and I'm enjoying it, which is good, because I was telling you before I said yes, before I watched it, when I knew you were available. Risk, risky strategy. I yeah. know, I know, and it's, I've come a cropper on it, but thankfully I haven't this time. But he's kind of a guy who's maybe a bit tired of the job of, of the guard. He's stuff going on at home, but he's, he's not enamored by hunting bad guys, it seems, at the start anyway. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, he, you know, where, where we meet this guy is um, he, he kind of, you know, for all intents and purposes, he seems like someone who's just lazy and, and not very good at his job. Um, there's a kind of an apathy to the guy. And um, it just oh, over time, you know, obviously she kind of the uh, the Fia character played by Lisa Duan, um she kind of tickles him in the wrong way mm. in the sense that, you know, she, she wants to get going. She's a mover and a shaker and she's kind of very forward thinking. And, and he's not kind of used to that in a small, sleepy backwater. Um, so, uh, but then, you, you know, as the layers are kind of peeled through the show, you realize, well, actually there's other stuff going on with this guy um, that, uh, you know, is, it causes him to kind of uh, take a back foot sometimes. Yeah, and and also he does, without giving a spoiler, he kind of rises to the occasion then as as things go on. So he's he's not without merit, let's say. it It's, it's dark uh, uh, and there's a lot of unpleasantness in it and the underbelly of Roar Ireland. But it looks beautiful and it was filmed in, in Killaloo. Was it nice to be back there doing this? I know you're working and all, but it's a lovely venue. Oh, it was fantastic. It was really great to be there. Um, and it's and it's a part of the country I hadn't been to a lot, um, County Clare. So, um, yeah, it's beautiful. And there's something about, you know, the lake, Loch Derg, in the middle of the, uh, uh, where we were shooting. It's kind of, you know, you'll see, you know, from seeing it, it kind of almost has a personality of its own in mm, the show. Yeah. It's a place that's that's both beautiful and also can hide secrets, you know. Yeah. And um I think that was kind of it's quite a seductive place to be in that sense, especially for something that is as dark as this. But there's a nice kind of dichotomy between that, you know, the beauty of the landscape and the the bleakness of the uh, of the plot lines and stuff. I think they kind of they marry uh, together really well. Yeah, and there is also you know people are lost and it's dark, but there's people looking for connection as well. You know, uh, your own character leases as well. So I suppose there's 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 light and shade, which is good when you're considering a script, I guess. Oh, totally. Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting about this one is you know often. The, with these kind of crime procedurals, there's very much they're kind of stock characters, you know, yeah. and you only ever see these characters in their work mode. But um, what Blackshore does, it, it really goes into the kind of the personal detail of the people and and what they're experiencing in their kind of domestic lives as well and how the two kind of overlap and intermingle with each other. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, so there's light and shade within kind of both aspects of people's lives uh, in the show, which which is a nice touch, I think. Yeah. And Rory, is it true that you're, like a lot of actors I talked to, in a way, for want of a better phrase, an accidental actor in that you never quite thought it would be your job as much as you enjoyed it. And then lo and behold, 
20 years later you find yourself described as an actor on your passport well yeah i mean it's i'm i'm it's it as i keep saying it beats working you know um <laughs> so yeah no i i just kind of i i i was thrown into it when i was a kid and um when you say I, thrown into it as in you were put on stage shows or well, yeah, no, that sounds like I had a pushy parent who told me to, <laughs> <laughs> told me to go up and do a song. Act, God damn that's it. That's not it at all. <laughs> that's not it at all. Yeah, no, I was, um, I, uh, I went to a, a, like a speech and drama school in, in, in Knockline when I was young and then really enjoyed it, you know, and, um, and then I think I did, I did an open audition for a show in the Olympia when I was like 10 or 11 and I got that. And then from that moment, really, it's just, that just became the extracurricular activity that I did and, mm. And I just carried on. And so, so, in, so you're right in the sense that I never made a kind of a conscious decision to become an actor. It was just something that I did and continued and continue to do. Mm. So, um, so yeah, one day I'll get a, a grown up job. <laughs> well, this but one's this. working out fine for now, I guess. So, <laughs> yeah. 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 Tell me this, the guard uh, opposite Don Cheadle and Brendan Gleeson, that was a massive movie at the time and it was a good movie you know and Irish movies come out and we all hope they'll be but that was one that that's still talked about and you were playing a cop in that as well not not that you typecast it's only the second time you've played a cop but I'm assuming that was a big deal for you at the time yeah it was it was great I mean you obviously when you're doing something you don't quite know yeah um how much it's going to travel and how well it's going to do. But there was definitely a sense that this was, that this, you know, the script was, was fantastic. And I remember at the time people auditioning for this and, and um, you know, it was, it was kind of the talk of the, of the community for a while, because at that time there weren't that many Irish films traveling, you know, Um, unlike at the moment, it seems to be um, uh, the environment for, for Irish films seems to be really healthy. Yeah. Yeah. but at the time, yeah, there was it was a bit slower. So at this, I don't know what year that was. It was it was twenty eleven, I think, or that's certainly when it came out. But right, yeah. So yeah, it was God, you're such an actor now. I can't remember when I did that film. <laughs> I, know, I know, yeah, yeah. It's what age was I? It was like, yeah, it's not a, um, but uh, but yeah, no. It, there was definitely a sense, and when you have someone like Brendan Gleeson and and Don Cheadle on board, you know, it's it's going to have some sort of um, gravitas. Yeah. So. Uh, yeah, well, it, it was a good one. It certainly had gravitas. And I mentioned The Duchess. Uh, I interviewed Catherine Wine for that two or three years ago. And I remember talking to her about you and just what a great creation he is. For people who don't know, you're her ex-husband. You were, oh, I'm not sure if you're actually divorced. I can't remember. But you, you, you share a daughter and he's a former boy band guy. <laughs> he used to sure. stand up off the stool. He's kind of a conspiracy yeah. theorist trying to live off the grid. He was brilliant. That must have been a lot of fun to play. Oh, uh, yeah, it was great. It was That was just one of those shows where you could just go out and, and, and just, you know, have loads of fun. I mean, she was, Catherine obviously wrote it and um, she was great to work with. She was very generous actually with, with, um, with the material and she kind of, she kind of, you know, handed it over to you in a sense and kind of, uh, in the sense that you could play with it and and um, yeah it was that was just one of those shows where you kind of go or you see the character on the page and you go yeah okay there's there's nothing too big with this guy <laughs> yeah know? yeah he can uh, he can be a bit nuts oh he was great and it's funny I remember saying to her beforehand right before we went on the zoom call my, it's three years ago my then 
two-year-old had run in and out of the room and I said, oh, I'm really sorry. And she was laughing and I said, because it's about parenting that show. And I said yeah. to her, you know, sorry, that's my third child has just run in. She went, how very Irish of you having three children. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. thought it was great. But, you know, people often mention that you're married to another actress, the very well-known uh, Gemma Arton, Arterton. I Sorry, I was mispronounce her name. My apologies to her. But I think people are fascinated by that because the idea of two actors living together, is it is it just like any other marriage in that, you know, you feed the child and you put out the bins or like you probably don't sit around talking about acting all the time? Oh, God, God no, no, that would that would be hell. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, I mean, I, I don't know what any other marriage is like. I've only been married once. So, 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 You're with so, your current uh, wife. Yeah, no, it's it's it, no, we, we, we don't kind of delve into all that stuff that's just kind of what we do and yeah. um, I mean obviously we have, a, we have a love for TV and film and theatre and stuff we met doing play and that's right yeah so um, so yeah there's obviously mutual interest there but uh, no it's 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 not like Elizabeth Taylor and uh, <laughs> and what's his name <laughs> Richard Burton no yeah <laughs> who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and tell me this finally then Rory what's what's next after Blackshore and stuff uh, the smoke dies down over that what's your next project or can you say yeah, no, I, well, I've got a, there's a show coming out on HBO in, in March called The Regime. Um, so that's airing, I think, in early March. Um, it's a mad, it's from the makers of, some of the makers of Succession. We shot oh, that wow. last year. Um, so I've got a bit on that. And uh, and then I'm making a film, making my second short film um, in the spring. Um, and uh, I've got a couple of projects that I'm writing for companies over here. So um, that's the kind of the other end of my um, my career that I've been nurturing over the last kind of uh, uh, four or five years. So um, there's always something to be done. Indeed there is. Well, in the meantime, Blackshore is on Sunday nights at 9.30 on RT1. You can see the first two episodes on The Player, or you watch the third one, tomorrow evening on RT1 at 9.30. I've been talking to one of its stars, Rory Keenan. Rory, thanks a lot and continued success. Pleasure, John. Thank you. I thought it was time to come home. She's back. The Lucy girl is back. 20 years ago, there wasn't an awful lot going on in this little town. We stood on the bridge thinking, how can we make this a place people flock to? A lot of men are going to be looking into their cornflakes this morning, wondering if the guards are going to knock on their door. As part of our investigation, we're very keen to locate this young woman and making sure that she is safe. How would you respond to questions about your suitability, given your personal history with a similar case here in Blackwater? You mean the death of my family? Everyone knows her father killed that Chloe Whelan girl. We're in this now. A little flavour there of Blackshore, which is on RTE on Sunday nights, which I have been enjoying. And uh, it's a good police procedural with, with a few unusual elements in it. And uh, Rory Keenan stars as the slightly angry cop, certainly angry at the start there. And nice to talk to Rory. That's it. For this week, my thanks to Amory Kane who helped out on the show. I'll just remind you that this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud, and it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. here on Newstalk. Get in touch with me at any stage during the week. John underscore Friday is my Twitter handle, or you can email me screentime at Newstalk.com. Thank you for listening. Have a safe week ahead, and I'll talk to you all next week.